Welcome to Airway Breathing Conversation, a podcast presented by the anesthesiology residents at the University of Saskatchewan, created to provide individuals of all levels of medical knowledge with anesthesiology-related healthcare information. This episode is part of our abridged Grand Round series, in which highly knowledgeable and sought-after guest speakers present on a multitude of fascinating topics relevant to anesthesia. Join us for Grand Rounds this week, where Dr. Karen Moore, a palliative care physician and former emergency physician in Saskatoon, and Michelle Bush, a social worker and senior health educator in Regina, discuss advanced care planning in Saskatchewan. Now, whether you are an anesthesiologist, resident, medical student, or member of the general public, come listen in as we demystify the incredible specialty that is anesthesiology one episode at a time. The objectives for today, we are aiming to review advanced care planning principles and terminology with a focus on our provincial legislation, discuss the recent SASC Health Authority advanced care planning program processes, and this gives us an opportunity to come together to talk about and address and work towards improving some of the challenges this new provincial work may have that is specific to your work in anesthesia. I want to highlight that the formal part of what we're presenting is quite short intentionally to allow a lot of time for not just Q&A, but also discussion, because with everything new, it's always good to be able to come together and just see how we can approach that best. Just really quickly, Henry very nicely introduced who Michelle and I are. I was just wondering if we have anyone outside the world of anesthesia or somebody who's in the background of anesthesia that has a unique area of practice that may influence what we're talking about today. I'm gonna assume that we have the work that I am very, um, you know, have seen with anesthesia, with the work that you guys do in obviously the OR, consults in the ER and on the wards. We always start with the definition of advanced care planning because it is still commonly misunderstood, even amongst people that have been in healthcare a long time. Advanced care planning is defined as an ongoing process that allows for patients an opportunity to share their wishes and instructions for future healthcare treatments. In that process, there may or may not be completion of a healthcare directive and or an appointment of a healthcare proxy. We need to remember that both the completion of a healthcare directive and appointment of proxy are regulated in Saskatchewan by the Healthcare Directives and Substitute Healthcare Decision Makers Act of 2015. We're not spending long time on this. We could literally, not exaggerating, spend a month talking about the healthcare directive and the Substitute Healthcare Decision Makers Act. We simply put this slide in to show you visually what it looks like. You can just do an internet search for it. It's, it takes you down a bit of a rabbit hole, but it'll spit you out the end at this if you're patient. You also can get a direct link to it from the Advanced Care Planning Program internet page. I think that this is something that every physician in our province should be at least baseline familiar with and understand some of it, knowing that it is incredibly nuanced and that the program is available for consultation with the educators, as well as in very complicated cases, liaising with legal if there are concerns that someone's situation and the legislation is super complicated. So don't feel that you need to be an expert on this at all. So who can complete a healthcare directive in our province and how do they do that? 
Any person 16 years of older who has capacity can complete their own healthcare directive. It can be done on any template. A lot of the former health regions have templates that are being circulated out there that some people are choosing. Other people are choosing to write their own. Written directives must be signed and dated. They don't need to be witnessed, but it is always a good recommendation to have it witnessed. Completion of a directive does not require involvement of a lawyer or a healthcare professional and does not need to cost somebody anything. Just a little arrow here to draw attention to language that changed within the program. South Health Authority moving forward is using the term healthcare directive. That will replace advanced care directive, advanced care plan, old phrases like living will. Healthcare directive is the language used in the legislation. So we've talked about who can complete a directive, who can't. Someone who does not have capacity cannot complete a directive. And a well-meaning loved one of someone who does not have capacity can't do that either. At first glance, it might seem weird that we put this slide in, but I very commonly bump into very well-meaning family members of patients that have cognitive challenges that family has just kind of taken over their care from a really good place. So they're doing the intake form at the dentist, they're completing other paperwork for them. So they bump into a healthcare directive template somewhere within the healthcare journey and a well-meaning loved one tries to complete it on behalf of their family member who doesn't have capacity. So we just have to all remember that only a patient themselves and only if they have capacity, those are the only people who can complete a directive. Next slide, please, Michelle. And then how is a healthcare directive revoked? According to the legislation, a directive can be revoked orally, in writing by destroying the directive or by making a new one. The clinical documentation and communication standards for advanced care planning have instructions of what to do if you have a patient who says they want to revoke their directive. The healthcare directive can only be revoked by the person who created it for themselves and only if they have capacity. If they've lost capacity, it cannot be revoked. So don't miss the opportunity. If you have a patient with a healthcare directive and capacity, it's the perfect time to review it. What does that directive mean to them? As a physician, when you read it, does it mean the same? Are we finding some confusion? Does it reflect what they still want moving forward? And making sure that we understand the intentions of what patients want. And Michelle will talk more about that when she talks about the supplemental consent form coming up in future slides. Next slide, please, Michelle. I'm gonna spend a little time on substitute decision maker. This is another term with lots of words that causes confusion. A substitute decision maker for medical decisions is an umbrella term. And it has four, commonly four, categories underneath it. And there's an order the legislation tells us that we're supposed to look for in looking for that substitute decision maker. So starting on the left and moving to the right, we wanna see if someone has a proxy. If they have a proxy, that is who we go to if we need a substitute decision maker. They don't have a proxy, do they have a personal guardian? If they don't have a proxy or a personal guardian, then we talk to the nearest relative. Both proxy and personal guardian will have paperwork to support them. And the nearest relative is outlined by the legislation. Next slide, please, Michelle. We'll jump into these a little bit more. A proxy is a substitute decision maker appointed by a patient with capacity. And there will be a document to verify that. 
Although you can be 16 or older to create your own healthcare directive, you have to be 18 or older in order to be a proxy. A proxy is expected to act in the patient's best interests. And more than one proxy can be written either as successive or joint. Joint meaning working together for a group decision. Successive meaning outlined the order in which we would approach them. So if someone has three proxies in successive order, we contact number one first. If number one is unable or unavailable, then we reach for number two and work our way down the list. Next slide, please, Michelle. A personal guardian is court-ordered and judge-appointed person who is involved in the care of a vulnerable adult, and there will be documents to verify that. The nearest relative list is outlined by the legislation, and I actually use that language when I talk to family. There's a lot of disappointment if a patient has not completed a proxy form that say the child that lives with them that goes to every medical appointment isn't the nearest relative as outlined by the legislation. So we start with a legal spouse or common law partner. Common law partner is there in red because at the end of this, I'm gonna ask Michelle to talk a little bit about the severely nuanced common law partner information. The intersection of legislation and boots on the ground healthcare is a very interesting place. Then we move on to children, parents, siblings, working our way down the list. Nearest relative for substitute decision-making must be 18 or older. If there's more than one person in a category, we approach the oldest one first. And that is detailed to the point that if it is twins and one twin is a minute older, it's the older twin. It's bloodline or legally adopted. There are no cousins for whatever reason in the nearest relative list and it does not include blended family members like stepchildren. Michelle, can you talk a little bit about the conversations that were had and meetings, including with legal of what a common law partner actually means? Thanks, Karen. So um, common law partner is sort of the phrase that most people hear and use and understand, but the way it's written in the legislation is actually the term cohabitates with and has cohabitated with in a relationship of some permanence. And so that is not defined in the legislation and um, can be left up to interpretation, which can be pretty complicated. So when we were looking at how to support healthcare teams who are you know, working in the real world, trying to um, identify who the correct substitute decision maker should be, uh, we had several meetings with um, quite a few stakeholders, including legal counsel, risk management, regulatory affairs, our program, to try to create something that provides some guidance to staff on how to identify whether this person who um, might be a live-in boyfriend, girlfriend, would reasonably be considered their nearest relative. And so um, I think the message is just that it is quite complicated. And um, if you are in a situation where it is complex and you're not entirely sure, there is um, some guidance available on our internet page. Our program is available to sort of talk things through with you. And uh, we do access legal counsel for opinions when needed. Thanks, Michelle. So again, looking back at those, um, the substitute decision maker is the umbrella term. We're gonna inquire whether someone has a proxy, whether someone has a personal guardian, knowing there's paperwork to support that. 
If not, we'll work our way through the nearest relative list as the legislation tells us to do. And if we do encounter someone who's very socially isolated with no nearest relative, then we do know that we need to move into the decision maker model of two practitioners. We should talk about some other terms that cause confusion. Next of kin, I actually have no idea what that means. That is an old term that I think is vague, confusing, doesn't actually define anything. I would actually recommend we just drop it. Executor, family members often want to tell us that they're somebody's executor. An executor becomes involved after death, so they are not involved in medical decision making. Power of attorney, that one can be tricky. Usually, a power of attorney just includes authority to manage someone's finances, but it can sometimes include authority for medical decision making. In that case, it's both a power of attorney and a proxy appointment. So if you have a patient without capacity and a family member tells you they're the POA, we should look at their paperwork to make sure that it authorizes for medical decision making or not. And again, if that paperwork isn't clear, the advanced care planning program is available for consultation to help with that. Common mistakes and misunderstandings when talking about substitute decision maker. Only the patient themselves can appoint their proxy. Similar to the previous slide of well-meaning loved ones doing a healthcare directive for their family member without capacity, sometimes they try to do that for proxy too. Again, these are well-meaning loved ones that are just trying to take care of their family members. But we need to let them know that that's just not something the legislation allows. A substitute decision maker can bow out of the duties, but they can't reappoint them. And what I mean by that is, if you're going through the nearest relative list and you contact the oldest child, it's a daughter, and she says, I have a cousin who's you know, in the medical system, very close with our family. I think my cousin would do a way better job of this. I'm going to reassign the substitute decision maker from me to my cousin. They can't do that. Again, these are usually coming from places of well-meaning family members, but we need to just let them know what the legislation tells them that what we can and cannot do. Sometimes, and in my experience, this is usually with the elderly, we will see care teams talking to a substitute decision maker when a patient still has capacity. And that's something that we need to remember is to go back to the person with capacity always first. And there are roles and boundaries expected of the substitute decision maker's authority. A substitute decision maker is expected to follow the patient's expressed wishes. If those are not known, the decision maker is expected to act in a way to honor the patient's best interest. Next slide, please, Michelle. This came up in conversation with some people of what do we look at when? If the patient has capacity, there's your gold standard, we're done, stop. So a patient with capacity, that's who we talk with. If our patient doesn't have capacity, then we can consult the healthcare directive and the substitute decision maker. I always like to, when I approach a patient with capacity, ask myself, how long do I think that is? If this is a tenuous situation, someone with a bad infection that I wouldn't be surprised has a delirium in the next little bit, this is a perfect opportunity to have some conversations and allow them the opportunity to sign a proxy if that is something that they would wish. Next slide, please, Michelle. This is a slide Michelle made that I like. It very much appeals to me as a visual thinker. You, in anesthesia, see people coming in and out of capacity all the time. Other healthcare professionals don't. So this may not be a relevant slide for you, but I think it is for other teams moving forward. Unfortunately, some people in healthcare 
don't see capacity as what it is as a fluid moving situation. A lot of people still see it as like a line in the sand time-wise. You have a life pre-capacity and you have a life post-capacity and there's a, a line with which things change. And that may happen for some people in their health journey, but most people we find have this fluctuating in and out. So, you know, if somebody's under sedation for a procedure. So if somebody's had a shared decision-making conversation and uh, treatment category in this most has been completed, has there been a clinical change or has something changed in their life, even while in hospital, that their goals are no longer aligning? Let's have that conversation and make sure that things are where they should. And we know that as physicians, we spend a lot of time thinking about the what ifs for our patients. And if those are what if worries we have, this is the time to have a conversation with them while we can understand what their thoughts, values, and wishes are. Next slide, please, Michelle. This is called an SDM decision tree, and I think it's so much more than that. I think that at first glance, especially on this slide, you probably can't see it all. It's it's overwhelming and daunting. But this is a really good resource for more than just substitute decision-making. It's helping talk through how do we make medical decisions with patients. So it starts with capacity. If they have capacity, that's who we talk to. If they don't have capacity, what is the chain that we work down? What is the difference um, with a healthcare directive that's specific or general? Who are we reaching for with for substitute decision maker and how do we go through that pathway? We can, if there's an interest, we can send a direct link to this after if you want. I just wanted to make it aware um, for you guys that this is available as a resource if you feel it would be helpful for you or anyone on your team. And with that, I'm gonna pass over to Michelle to do more information on the planning program. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Karen. So the Advanced Care Planning Program is a new provincial program that supports the whole province with offices in Regina and Saskatoon. Currently, we have four full-time senior health educators uh, directly reporting to Linda McPhee, who is the Director of Clinical Standards and Professional Practice. And we have a part-time medical director, which is Karen. So you can read out the purpose statement of the program on the slide if you're interested, and it is also available on our intranet page. Um, I want people to know that there has been an advanced care planning program in Regina since 2012, and we recently launched our provincial program only about a month ago. So in the past, there was considerable variation across the province in terms of processes, documents, forms, expectations um, in all the various former regions, and frontline providers were asking us for improved tools and practice supports to support the important work of advanced care planning. And that was really magnified um, during COVID. So in June of 2020, a working group was made up of physicians, nurses, social workers, First Nations and Métis health educator staff, directors, managers, respiratory therapists, and patient and family partners from all across SHA. That original oversight committee morphed into working groups to create the policy and procedures and then the education tools and supports. And we also have a community of practice now. So in 2021, ELT approved funding for the additional educator support and the medical director. 
So in terms of what's available for you, our intranet page on the SHA intranet is actually available and open. So in some former regions, you would need to log in in order to access the intranet, but that's not the case for the SHA intranet. So you should always be able to access our resources on our page. In terms of what you might find there of interest, we do have quite a lot of education materials, including the Advanced Care Planning Program Learning Module, which is available through e-learning in my connection. And there is also a instruction page posted for how to access it if you're having trouble. We also have a recording of uh, presentation information about substitute decision makers. We have our SMOST training video, which I hope you've all had the opportunity to look at. It's only 13 minutes. We do also have all of our practice supports there. So we have the decision tree that Karen uh, let you know about, but we also have frequently asked questions, both uh, related to advanced care planning generally and specific to this most. And then we've got um, several guidelines, algorithms, information sheets, all types of things. We have posters available for this most and much more. So that is all available on our internet page, best place to look. The other um, thing that you might be interested in is our patient-facing documents. So those are called PEER documents in SHA. That's P-I-E-R, Patient Information and Education Resources. And so those were developed by the education group, and they can be used in a couple different ways. So they are designed so they can be just handed out to people, um, and they should have everything that they need. But we've also found that they could potentially be quite helpful in terms of um, supporting conversations or preparing for conversations. So some people have found that sitting down with a substitute decision maker pamphlet and a patient or family member can help um, have the conversation be a little bit easier because you have a tool to use for that. The other service we provide is consultation with the health educators. So we do have an intake line and email address that is monitored uh, Monday to Friday, 8 to 4.30, and that will connect you with one of the health educators uh, who can provide you a couple of things. So if you have general questions about advanced care planning or looking for information, we can uh, assist you with that. And we can also do consultation on specific situations. If it's a little bit complex or tricky and you're needing some support to work your way through that, we can provide that. We often um, take the opportunity to consult with legal counsel um, because we are not lawyers and don't give legal advice as educators. We um, will connect you to legal counsel if that is something that is needed. And the other thing that we do is um, know who we might wanna connect you with for other reasons. So sometimes we might encourage you to contact the privacy office or ethics or risk management, and we can point you in the right direction. So uh, the information for that is also available on our internet page, our phone number and email address. So in terms of the new provincial program and the processes that are new, at least for some of you, um, the green sleeve, which is a green plastic page protector that is at the front of the chart. And the purpose of the green sleeve is to ensure that you have all of the history and conversation and documentation related to advanced care planning all in one place. It stays intact at the front of the chart when the person is discharged and is copied and sent when the person is transferred. So if you're looking for information, it should all be in the same place and you don't have to go digging through old charts and prior visits to try to find something. The other new process, a new for everyone, uh, is the patient face sheet. And so this is stored in the green sleeve. 
And it um, is designed to support the team approach to advanced care planning because it allows you to quickly find out what information exists, what we have, what's still outstanding. For example, if the person indicates they have a healthcare directive, but they don't have it with them, or it you know was copied and is in a green sleeve in a different facility, we know to um, request that. So it allows you to uh, know what we have and what we need. And the other thing that it may do is identify the substitute decision maker if that's been identified. So that can be a bit of a quick reference to know uh, if, if we know who their substitute decision maker is. And here's some pictures of them. I hope you've all seen them by now. It's been about a month, so I'm hoping that the green sleeves are making it onto the charts. Uh, but there's a picture of one with a smost in it, and then this is what the patient face sheet looks like. Another new, uh, new part of the advanced care planning program is the new provincial order set. So we call it the SMOST, the Saskatchewan Medical Order for Scope of Treatment. Uh, so it is a practitioner order signed by a physician or nurse practitioner. So that is different in some places. And it replaces a lot of the former regions, forms, and order sets, including the MAVULST, the Serious Illness Sudden Collapse Form, the Resuscitation Care Plan Form, the Consent for Management of Life-Threatening Conditions, and both the Goals of Care Order and Designation Forms. This is another new SHA form. So this is the Healthcare Decision Supplemental Consent Form. And it is a new form, but it was modeled after forms that were already in existence in some of the former regions and was adapted with input from various stakeholders, including anesthesia leads. So this form is only needed if the patient has a healthcare directive or SMOST that places some limits on CPR and resuscitation. And it's used to clarify the plan for the periprocedural period and provides instructions on which interventions are agreed to during this period. And so this is a really complex topic, uh, both medically and legally, and there's a lot of nuance here. So it makes sense, and we understand, that a person might make a decision about resuscitation or CPR during a proposed procedure without changing the decision related to resuscitation in other contexts. When a person creates a healthcare directive, we don't always know what they were con contemplating and what their intention was. So this is why taking the opportunity to clarify that with them while they still have capacity is really helpful. They may or may not have intended that the instructions on the directive apply to a surgery or procedure that is now needed that they might not have even known about at the time they made the directive. So really the most important thing here is clarity to ensure that everyone, including the patient and substitute decision maker, the care team during the procedure and the care team after are all on the same page about what instructions um, and whether or not they are applicable uh, from the healthcare directive or SMOST, whether they're applicable to the procedure and the period of time after. For people who have a SMOST in effect with an M or C scope of treatment, Using this form provides clarity for the periprocedural period without having to redo this most before and after. So we're trying to avoid rework here. So I can anticipate that there will be some questions and discussion about this new form and this process. So we are budgeting time for that during the Q&A. And we just have a little bit more here. So when we look to the future for the advanced care planning program, given we're one month old in terms of program launch. Uh, we have goals to work on um, program development with a focus on primary health care and public engagement. 
And we also are looking at uh, support for communication. So we recognize that conversations about advanced care planning are very complex and nuanced, and many people don't feel very comfortable in these. And we're receiving requests for support in this area. And so we're looking at, uh, with the resources we have, what are the best approaches to meet that need? You've been listening to Airway Breathing Conversation, a podcast hosted and presented by the anesthesiology residents at the University of Saskatchewan. Please note that while this podcast is run by healthcare professionals, it is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. We are very thankful to our guests for taking the time to share their wisdom with us this episode, and a very special thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Don't forget to follow us and our associated USASC Anesthesia accounts on social media. You can find all our social media links on our Linktree page at linktr.ee slash abc underscore podcast. You can also find the department's social media links on their Linktree page at linktr.ee slash usask underscore anesthesia. We'll see you next episode, but until then, stay calm, take a breath, and always remember your ABCs.